welcome back to the Med School Tutors Podcast, your resource for high-yield tips and proven guidance to help reduce stress and give you tangible tools for success from pre-med through residency and the boards. Let's dive in. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Hassam Hamoud. You can call me Sam Hamoud. I'm one of the MSD tutors here. And uh, today we're going to be talking about care management for step two CK shelf exams and step three exam. So just a little bit of background about myself. Uh, I'm a second year medicine resident at Lenox Hill Hospital in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Yes, we do have a Netflix show, so go check it out. Uh, I am not featured on it, unfortunately, but maybe on season two that might happen. Um, But I've been tutoring with MST for the past four to five years, and I've had the pleasure of meeting so many people from all different walks of life, from different countries, from different training, um, and it's really been a pleasure. Uh, I've taken pride in uh, tutoring students one-on-one, performing group uh, webinar activities, and even before MST, I was tutoring at uh, St. George's University, where I did my uh, med- medical school teaching uh, training in the first two years of basic sciences, and then I went to Hackensack University Medical Center for my clinical rotations. So welcome. So a little bit of background about who we are at MST. Uh, MST is one big loving family, honestly. I love it. Everybody here um, is so down to earth. We all know each other at a personal level. We all um, have fun. We even have little group retreats and we meet up in New York City, for example. So it's a very tight-knit group of people. We offer a a wide range of variety of services, including one-to-one online tutoring, all the way from pre-medicine through residency in the board. So step one, step two, CK, um, step three, residency advising, which I've actually had the pleasure of doing uh, last fall for all the students who were applying uh, to a various range of specialties, such as internal medicine, OBGYN, and surgery. And we were really able to give them um, uh, our perspective in terms of the interview process. We were there with a, a supporting mentality because it was a very, very stressful time uh, through the interview process. We really know that. And that's who we are at MST. We also provide that layer of support. We've been doing this for about 15 years, and we've been so proud to say that it's been a success story and that we continue to work on growing and getting to know as many students as possible and helping them. That's the most important part. So what are we going to cover tonight? So tonight is really about uh, one of, in my opinion, the most important uh, uh kind of thought processes or approaches uh, to answering uh, USMLE type of questions on step two, CK, and then step three, especially. So first, we're going to understand the pathway in which a physician makes management decisions, including triage and acuity. You really need to think about how am I going to assess this patient? How am I going to see how how in danger they are in terms of uh, their diagnosis. Is it an acute emergent situation or is it something that I have time to think about? Do I have time to actually come up with that differential? Do I have time to think about uh, further screening and diagnostics, which we're gonna go over in the next couple of slides. Then we're also gonna talk about evidence-based practice and diagnostics. Should you just observe the patient or should you continue working them up? 
The other, pro the other uh, talking point we're going to have today is to develop a systematic and reproducible method of approaching the next best step in management questions. So this not only applies to next best step questions, this applies to any question on USMLE board exams. You need to have a systematic approach because then you'll be able to get through questions and crush them fast because uh, time management is super key. We've noticed that with students uh, and myself included in the, over the years, that time management using a systematic approach, you'll be able to crush each block quicker. The next thing we'll, the last thing we'll talk about is going over some examples, which is the most important part. And we'll go over some USMLE style questions uh, that ask the next best step in management. I'm going to add some uh, extra layers to it too, as well, to make it sound a little bit more difficult. And we'll challenge the audience here uh, to see what you guys come up with. And last but not least, we'll have a live uh, Q&A. Uh, you can use the chat box in the uh, Zoom feature to see, to ask any question you want, uh, and I'll be more than happy to answer it. So approaching the undifferentiated patient. So uh, the patients on USMLE style, style type of questions, uh, especially the writers, don't expect you to know uh, multi-layer treatment modalities for most diseases because, you know, at most you've been in clinical rotations uh, and you've seen maybe initial treatment and management, which is okay. So you need to first always have the mindset of what is the diagnosis of this patient when you're reading your vignette or question stem. And then think about the first line treatment. The first line treatment is usually uh, something like, for example, hypertension, you use a calcium channel blocker or an ACE and ARB. Uh, usually first line therapies are what they're going to ask. Second line therapies are very few and far. Um, and there's some uh, kind, of, um, kind of more difficult questions related to that, but the majority of them are gonna be first line. Um, and you're going to see that the, usually one drug, such as like diabetes and metformin, uh, is going to be kind of the first answer choice that you go to. There's been some recent guideline changes in medications, especially actually for diabetes. You don't need to worry about that because the USMLE is actually a couple of years behind in guidelines. So it's good for you just to know what's featured in the literature, especially you uh, will questions. And diagnosing patients is difficult. Uh, we totally understand that and that's what we're here for. And this is what we're gonna talk about in this uh, uh, presentation today. Um, thinking about screening versus diagnostic. How are you going to approach, should I screen this patient or should I go towards a more specific exam that's more diagnostic in nature? And then last but not least, a diagnostic exam is not always the best exam in terms of a gold standard versus any exam. So. For example, uh, a CT urogram uh, that can help look at the ureters and the urinary tract is a very intense uh, study and it has radiation, it's expensive and insurance. Um, if you're trying to figure out what's going on with acute kidney injury, if you think there's an obstruction, a renal ultrasound is actually a better um, modality and it's also cheaper. And we'll talk about that why in the next slide. So screening versus diagnostic. So a screening test is, a very, is very sensitive in nature. Um, although it's non-specific, it's going to help capture a large amount of patients that are you're looking for a certain finding, okay? So uh, that could be a renal ultrasound that we just discussed before. It could be a right upper quadrant ultrasound in the sense of a patient with right upper quadrant pain or a Murphy sign, and you're concerned for acute cholecystitis. Some definitive uh, diagnostic exams that are a little bit more aggressive, more invasive, more radiation exposure, more expensive, um, can be things such as a, a D-dimer, uh, breast mammography, 
a pap smear, a right heart catheterization, or even a left heart catheterization, and uh, a CT angiography of the chest or a CT uh, protocol, the PE protocol that we call it. So the mindset that you need to have when it comes to choosing a test on USMLE Step 2 CK as well as USMLE Step 3, respectively, is think about what am I gonna, what test is gonna give me my best bang for my buck, most efficient, and quickest too, as well. So the example of a right upper quadrant ultrasound, you also have the choice in a patient with acute cholecystitis to get a HIDA scan. But a HIDA scan is a second line therapy, a second line study, I'm sorry, and it's more expensive and it takes more time. A right upper quadrant ultrasound can even be done by a practitioner. Um, we at Lenox Hill, we do bedside POCUS point of care ultrasounds to rule out acute cholecystitis. It's a very cheap uh, study to do. Also radiation exposure. On step two CK, you really need to think about radiation exposure when it comes to OBGYN. A woman who's pregnant with CTs can be exposed to radiation, the fetus may be compromised. So in the, unless it's an acute situation, and we'll talk about that in the coming slides, you might wanna stay away from CTs in that situation. So think about radiation exposure, very important. Obviously with an ultrasound, you're not gonna have that issue. And then least invasive. So least invasive test is super important on step two CK because they want you to see, they want to test your ability to see what is the most valuable exam that will cause the least amount of discomfort for the patient. Uh, for example, uh, a patient, if you're worried about a pulmonary hypertension, for example, you can get a, a transthoracic echocardiogram that can actually measure pulmonary pressures in the system. But the actual best way to measure pulmonary pressures in a patient is to do a right heart catheterization, where we go through the right femoral vein, and we actually look at the right side of the heart. We measure the pressures in the ventricle with a catheter, and then we measure the pressures in the pulmonary arteries, and then we even do a wedge pressure to make sure the patient doesn't have left heart failure. That's a very invasive test, and there's complications with those tests. For example, if the patient uh, is bleeding in their femoral groin site of the access for the vein, uh, those are all complications and incur more cost, whether, whereas you could have just simply done a transthoracic echo, a sonogram, uh, to evaluate the patient's pulmonary pressures. So going on to triage. So triage is very important because it, it's testing your ability to risk stratify the patient. How likely is this patient at risk of an adverse event, including death? So for example, things such as psoriasis is not life-threatening in nature. You have time to think about treatment. You don't need to be aggressive and going right ahead and treating the patient. You can work the patient up and perform more tests. Life-threatening in days, for example, a patient who has, let's just say, a recent MI and now comes in with shortness of breath, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, uh, is more concerning because it sounds like they're in CHF or acute uh, decompensated heart failure. And the statistics have shown that it causes a higher rate of morbidity and mortality, respectively. So that's something in the mindset of, okay, this looks like this is a patient now that we have to be worried about and that they could potentially decompensate in the next, let's just say three to six days or even a week uh, timeframe-wise. Life-threatening in hours, things such as sepsis or a patient uh, developing a really severe PE that, or a massive PE that's causing hemodynamic compromise or a submassive PE that's causing right heart strain but not hemodynamic compromise, you have to think about if this is to go untreated 
this may decompensate or the patient may decompensate in the next several hours and require higher levels of care or go into more complications. For example, with a patient in PE with a submassive or massive, they may go into a fatal arrhythmia such as a uh, PEA or a systole or a ventricular tachyarrhythmia such as VTAC or VFib. And then in minutes, a minute situation is very important on uh, step two CK, especially because it has a surgical component to it most of the time, if it's life-threatening in nature. So if a patient comes in with, again, your Bex triad, your JVD, your hypotension, your muffled heart sounds, your faint pulses, uh, that's a sign of a pericardial uh, tamponade or a cardiac tamponade and that the patient needs to get an emergent pericardiosynthesis. So that's a situation where a diagnostic test, sure, you're going to be doing an echo, but it's most likely while you're wheeling the patient up to the catheterization lab to get that fluid, to use a needle, to drain the fluid out. Uh, so that's how you stratify patients in terms of triaging. Think about is this patient going to decompensate in minutes, in hours, in several days, or not in the foreseeable future at all? So when does treating, as I alluded to in the previous slide, supersede a diagnostic study, whether it's a screening or a diagnostic study in particular, when does treating the patient really supersede them all? And this is the most difficult aspect, in my opinion, of step two CK uh, and step three as well, because it's really testing your knowledge of the triaging. So if a patient has an issue or an imminent threat to them in hours to minutes, you got to say to yourself, maybe a diagnostic test will take too long and the patient will decompensate too quickly. And I need to go ahead and treat the patient right away. So one of them, for example, is a patient with a woman with umbilical cord prolapse. So uh, we had a fetal heart tracing uh, webinar not too long ago, and we went over the fetal heart tracings. And then one of them was an umbilical cord prolapse or compression, um, which showed a, a specific or unique deceleration. And that's an emergent uh, situation where the patient needs to be evaluated and treated whether it's an uh, emergent C-section or an amnio infusion to try to see if you can get the umbilical cord kind of, uh, kind of out or back into the amniotic sac, that's an emergent situation. Uh, then if something not as life-threatening, such as a woman that has abnormal uterine bleeding and she's postmenopausal, you still need to be aggressive and work that patient up in, in terms of concern for endometrial cancer. Uh, if a patient has a systolic murmur at the apex and it's a young uh, patient, you have a lot of time to think about it. The patient is not decompensating. They're hemodynamically stable and they're showing no signs of symptoms. So you have a lot more time now that you have a physical exam finding to think about what else you need to do for this patient. Should I go ahead and get a transthoracic echocardiogram or is this murmur a two out of six flow murmur and this patient is anemic? Uh, say a classic example on step two CK is a woman that's uh, in her menopausal years and she has you know, abnormal uterine bleeding or menorrhagia and her anemia, I'm sorry, her hemoglobin is about you know, 11 and she has a microcytic pattern. And then on your exam, you hear this apex murmur that's a two out of six. The key finding is a two out of six. If it's above three out of six, that's more concerning. 
that's a flow murmur. And that's actually a question on step two CK where they wanted to see if you think that this is a concerning finding or not. And usually the answer choice is actually reassurance because a flow murmur is simply because of her anemia. And you don't need to pursue more uh, tests, including a transthoracic echo, because it's expensive and it charges patients the, their insurance. We see it all the time in New York City where uh, sometimes tests that are done can cause huge bills uh, to patients and it may have not been the best tests. A more acute and emergent uh, example is in a patient with uh, chest pain and they have classic ST segment elevations. Uh, this holds true to my heart, no pun intended, but I do want to go into cardiology uh, after my chief year. And cardiology, especially with chest pain, is a very serious uh, symptom to really uh, assess and triage and at both the emergency department level for those that want to go into EM and also in the internal medicine level and cardiac telemetry and CCU levels, respectively. So that is a situation where you need to say to yourself, this is very concerning. I need to work this patient up quicker. Or if it's clearly the findings of a, of a heart attack with troponins, the patient's got to go to the cath lab right away. You do not need to worry about a coronary angiography or um, further non-invasive testing. The patient has to get treated right away. And then another surgical example is a patient with a penetrating abdominal trauma. So say, for example, the patient had a fall from a 20-story building and uh, you do a fast exam. It's cheap, it's efficient, it's an ultrasound, and you see basically uh, findings consistent with blood or intraperitoneal bleeding. Then you have to go ahead and operate right away. There's no need for a CT of the abdomen and pelvis when your FAST exam was very diagnostic and showed quickly that the patient is bleeding intraperitoneally and needs to have emergent surgery. So always ask yourself, do I need to treat right away? Do I have time to think? If I have time to think about the patient, usually that means you need to go ahead with more testing. And this basically summarizes exactly what I said in terms of a nice flow sheet. I love flow sheets. They help keep me sane during my studying time for step two CK and step three. But think about the acuity of the illness. Is this life-threatening or not? Then do I have time to think about the diagnosis? Do I have time to think about further workup? Do I have time to think about, should I treat this patient now or should I treat them later? Or the last part is, should I observe the patient? Uh, there's very little situations on step two CK where you observe the patient. And the last thing, if I can really hit something home to all of you, is on step two CK and step three is a little secret, you should never refer to another service. Meaning, if a patient comes in with chest pain and chest discomfort and, and you're an internal medicine resident, for example, and they ask you a USMLE step two CK question asking what's the next best step, and the answer choice featured has referred to a cardiology or, at, or uh, call in a cardiology consultation, that's usually the wrong answer. And there's actually one referral I'm gonna ask the audience one referral or consultation on step two CK and step three that is actually okay to click as an answer choice. Can anyone in the discussion tell me what is a situation, it could be anything, it's not heart related, that, okay, ethics social worker. So G, that's an excellent, excellent one. Anybody else? Psych, OBGYN. Okay, Kishin, Psych Consult, nice. Matthew So, OBGYN, okay. 
So, and palliative. So step three, palliative is actually be pretty important. Uh, and you won't probably see questions like that. Uh, I think those are pretty advanced. There's a couple that are. The surgical consultation usually is more of send the patient to surgery if it's an emergent issue, which was an excellent point. The one uh, situation that's important is in a patient with, for example, HSV retinitis, uh, a, a patient who has HIV or AIDS can come in with acute monoocular blindness and pain in the vision, and you do a fundoscopy and there's findings consistent with that. You have to consult ophthalmology right away. That's one of the few uh, consultations that you have to order uh, on these exams, respectively. In real life, we really consult all of these services normally because we want to make sure we have them on board. But excellent, excellent, excellent uh, answers from all of you guys. So we're going to go over now some examples, uh, and we'll go through uh, the thought process in terms of how do you assess this patient. Uh, and then we're also going to go over some more advanced questions I'm going to ask on top of this question in terms of the subject that we're asking about. So practice question one, a 24-year-old woman presents to the emergency department with a six-hour history of acute shortness of breath. So I'm thinking to myself, I always on any USMLE question whether it's step one through step three, is I highlight a 24-year-old woman and I basically highlight the sim presenting symptom. Or I highlight their age and risk factors that are stated. Risk factors on step two, CK especially, and step three are super important to help you understand what, what the differentials could be for this patient. So this sounds like a 24-year-old healthy woman comes in with a six-hour history of acute shortness of breath. Okay. Yesterday, she returned from vacation after a 10-hour car ride. That's a very suspicious, uh, this, uh, a very important finding that's making you feel, uh, be suspicious for a certain uh, diagnosis. So she was in the car for 10 hours. She takes OCPs daily. I would definitely highlight that because that is very important because we'll talk about why in a second. While in the emergency department, she has a syncopal episode while walking to her bathroom. Syncope in a 24-year-old patient is very concerning because she does not have risk factors um, that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. Her temperature was 37 degrees, so she's a Celsius, so she's afebrile. Her blood pressure is 92 over 64, so borderline hypotensive. Her heart rate is 134 beats per minute, so she is tachycardic in nature. And she's tachypnic with a respiratory rate of 26 breaths per minute and desaturating. She is hypoxic to 87% on room air. Her physical exam findings reveal clear lungs and regular tachycardia, uh, according to the palpation probably. Which of the following is the next best step in management? So a couple things before I ask the audience what you guys think the answer is. Uh, let's talk about how we assess this patient in terms of acuity. So this woman has no risk factors in the sense of comorbidities. However, she was on a plane flight for 10 hours and she's also on oral contraceptive pills. That is a red flag for hypercoagulability. Those two findings, especially in a younger woman, is concerning. She comes in with borderline hypotension and she's tachycardic. Those are also significant findings as well as hypoxic. So if I were to say, in terms of acuity of care, this sounds like a patient who is decompensating uh, in front of us as she's in the emergency department. Uh, that is a sign that maybe I need to shift uh, towards one arm or the other that uh, we spoke about in the previous slides. So 
I'm going to leave it to the audience. What do you guys think is the next best step in the management of this patient? All right, I'm seeing a lot of Ds. I'm seeing one or two Es. Okay. Melody saying heparin. Camilla saying E, initiate heparin. Anybody else? So good answer choices. All right, I'm starting to see a lot more E's coming in. Okay, so this patient has an acute presentation. They're actively decompensating. These are red flags if we went back, if we look back at our flow sheet and our diagram, this is acute in nature and we need to think about instead of further diagnostic testing, we need to go ahead and initiate heparin. So this patient, as some of you alluded on the chat, has a pulmonary embolism. This woman came in uh, with no medical history in the sense of comorbidities. However, she does have these risk factors of sitting on a plane, or I'm sorry, car ride for 10 hours and taking OCPs. On step two CK especially, if you want to uh, think about the diagnosis quickly of a patient. Think about also your scoring systems. So in this woman, she has she's applicable for the Wells criteria score, and she easily has a score above greater than four. And the way I remember uh, the Wells score is W-E-L-L -L is four letters. A score of four or more is significant for a patient with a pulmonary embolism, and that is a high suspicion. So this woman the question I wanted to ask the audience is, do you guys think, yes or no, there's a utility in before starting heparin, should we have gotten a D-dimer for her? Let me know what you guys think. All right, Anna saying no, Jeet saying no, Abdul, no. Excellent. So I saw low D-dimers indicated for low pretest probability. Excellent. I love it. So well score is going to help you remove that need for that screening test of a D-dimer. You got to go ahead and start heparin right away. Her well score is already above four. You got to go with treating. There's a high probability of a PE. A D-dimer, just for you guys to know, in the hospital setting is not really used because it could be easily confounded if a patient's septic the patient's D-dimer can go up. If the patient has other comorbidities or issues, surgeries can cause increased D-dimers, you have to be aware of that. So it's really more for triaging, and as all of you alluded to, low pretest probability. So this patient, we went ahead and started heparin. A CT angiography is not indicated because the patient was decompensating. The patient's blood pressure was borderline hypotensive, and they're becoming, and they are hypoxic, and they may need even worse uh, oxygen requirements. So to add another layer to this question, what if we uh, further describe this woman that we, uh, we noticed on the EKG that there was evidence of right ventricular strain? So they simply described to you that, uh, that there's right ventricular strain. The patient's blood pressure is in the 120s, her systolic, and she is uh, saturating at 91 to 92%. Would you then pursue heparin or would you further uh, work it up and get some other testing for this patient? What do you guys think? So Jeet saying CT, 
Nadi saying further workup, Matthew So Hepburn. Okay. Excellent. So the majority of you are saying workup. So you could see the difference, right? This patient that I further described or, or changed up simply by a couple of vitals. This patient was stable. I have time to think. And if the EKG shows right ventricular strain, maybe I should get a CT angiography uh, to see how big this clot is. And it also CT can assess the right ventricle to see if there is evidence of strain. Another good answer too is a transthoracic echo, but you want to get a CT first and then a transthoracic echo. So excellent job, guys. Okay. So going on to practice question two. So a three-month-old infant is brought to the clinic for a well-child examination. He makes six wet diapers per day and cries for the bottle every two hours. He is at the 78th percentile for height, 70th percentile for weight, and appears well-developed and well-nourished. His parents point out a periumbilical lesion that has been present and has even increased in size since birth. The photo is at the bottom right corner. Which of the following is the next best step in management? I could just say easily for step two CK and step three, any dermatological uh, diseases that are, are you study, look at different pictures of patients with different skin colors. That's very important to know because you will not always see that classical picture uh, of either a patient with a, a Caucasian with skin, a white skin color. It could be more tan. It could be darker. It could be olive skin like me. And <laughs> so be aware of the different skin colors. So what do we think is the next best step in managing this patient? Okay. So I'm seeing a lot of D answers. Okay. Good. Jeet said reassurance. Charvani, hemangioma. Excellent. So that's correct. So you could see that uh, this is an observation reassurance question. Very, very classic pediatric question uh, of a hemangioma, strawberry hemangioma. And this is going to increase in size as the baby gets a little bit older. About It can regress at the as early as 18 months to two years, but it's something you just watch and observe. There's no concern for malignancy or malignant conversion. It's just a finding of kind of uh, a ectatic uh, vascular formation that will regress over time. So you had time to think about this. The patient was not decompensating. The patient was not symptomatic. Uh, and the patient was showing no signs and symptoms of this uh, finding. And there was no sequelae, as we said before. So now you have to say to yourself, do I need to pursue further diagnostic testing? Or did I come up with the differential or the actual true diagnosis in my vignette just by looking at it and reading it and looking at the risk factors? And do I even need to pursue further diagnostic testing? This is a classic case where you don't. Uh, and that was a, this is a great example of that. So good job, everybody. Okay, so practice question three. A 38-year-old man is brought to the emergency department following a high-speed motor vehicle accident. So always, um, just for reference, and I forgot to mention this, was that I always read the, the question actually first on a question stem. So I always I already read to myself, which the following is the next best step in management? So a 38-year-old man, I already highlighted that, he's relatively young, uh, and he's involved in a high-speed motor vehicle accident. Um, and this is a automatically a trauma surgical type of question. I'm thinking about step two CK. Upon arrival to the trauma bay, he's alert and in visible distress, meaning he's symptomatic. There's a large bruise across his right chest, so his right hemithorax, and in his abdomen. 
His vital signs, he has a blood pressure of 82 over 58. That's concerning. He is hypotensive. Heart rate of 148. He is is, uh, tachycardic. And a respiratory rate of 36 breaths per minute. Breath sounds are absent on the right side of the chest. There is jugular venous distension, which the following is the next best step in management. Okay. So I'm seeing a bunch of Bs. I saw a one or two Ds, and I saw an E. So I want to see and test your knowledge, everybody, on what type of shock is this? Give me some answers as to what type of shock this is. Okay, I'm seeing cardiogenic, I'm seeing hypovolemic. Matthew, not hypovolemic, JVD, good. Think about these physical exam findings, excellent. Hypovolemic shock, Dennis, okay. So some physical exam findings that are concerning for this patient, they're hypotensive, they're definitely in a shock, they're tachycardic, okay? So you're thinking, okay, this could be cardiogenic, this could be hypovolemic, this could be obstructive. Obstructive is a PE or a tamponade. Then the physical exam findings are even more important, that there's absent breath sounds on the right side. So if a patient had a cardiogenic shock picture, which I see some of you have answered, think about a patient who had a massive MI, and then there's so much myocardium that died that their heart is now an acute failure. They're cold in their peripheral extremities. They will always tell you that on step 2CK in terms of physical exam finding. They'll have JVD, they'll have crackles. In this patient, we are only seeing that they have absent breath sounds on the right side. Yes, there is JVD, but there's no mention of cold extremities. So the next best step, I saw a lot of you answer B. This patient, in terms of acuity, is at the highest it could be. This is something in the next minutes, uh, hopefully, you can get a needle thoracostomy to decompress a tension pneumothorax. So this is a classic example of obstructive shock. So when you think about shock, you have to think about cardiogenic, distributive, which includes anaphylactic or septic shock obstructive shock, which is a tension pneumothorax and and, uh, cardiac tamponade, and then um, uh, also a hypovolemic shock, which is in the trauma setting, and this could have been the answer that the patient was losing a lot of blood. However, the physical exam findings were the key. You're going to see in hypovolemic shock, tachycardia and hypotension, but that right, uh, right side of the chest in terms of auscultation was very unique to a pneumothorax. And that's very common you see um, with patients in uh, trauma and car accidents. To add another layer of complexity to this question, if the patient wasn't hypotensive, okay, and was, you know, tachycardic to 120s, uh, what is, and then and you, and you, and if they asked you, what is the next best step? So we have time, right? Now we have time. The acuity is not emergent. Now we go into that next, that kind of less acute, uh, acute level. And they ask you, what's the best imaging modality for this patient? And you whittle down your answer choices to either a chest X-ray or an ultrasound, a thoracic ultrasound. So which one would you guys choose? I want to hear from all of you. Okay, so I'm seeing people are saying chest X-ray, going with the chest X-ray, and I'm seeing a little, I think it's almost split with an ultrasound. Okay, so an ultrasound is actually more sensitive and quicker at picking up lung pathologies than a chest X-ray. 
A chest X-ray will show you a pneumothorax, but think about it. You have to, uh, and this is all about efficiency as we went over before, you have to call the X-ray technician, they have to come and shoot the picture and your patient may start decompensating. An ultrasound machine is usually on every unit, especially if the patient's in a critical care, like a trauma bay, for example, and you can quickly put some jelly down on their uh, thorax and look to see if there's lung sliding. That's a very important phrase that they'll say. If there's no lung sliding, that means that there's air in the intrapleural space, and that is significant for a tension or a pneumothorax. Whether it's tension or not is likely due to the hemodynamics, which that patient that we just went over, it has a tension pneumothorax. So an ultrasound is actually cheaper, less uh, takes less time, and has more bang for your buck because not only can you see uh, lung pathologies in the sense of a, um, a pneumothorax, you can actually detect pneumonias in the back in the posterior aspects of the lung better than a chest X-ray. So that's another question they may ask you on step two CK. If you're kind of questioning whether a patient uh, has a pneumonia or not, and the chest X-ray they classically tell you is uh, unremarkable, and you know it's not like acute bronchitis, they actually have lots of uh, production of sputum, they're febrile, maybe even septic. Uh, a lung ultrasound is actually more sensitive and will pick up that pneumonia than a chest X-ray, especially, especially in the posterior lung fields. All right, excellent job. So a chest X-ray, like we said before, uh, was not the answer choice because of the acuity of care. The next best step is you got to treat the patient. Diagnostics are going to take way too long for this patient, and they're going to decompensate literally in front of you. So next process question. So a 64-year-old woman with hypertension and diabetes, so she's a little bit older, uh, is brought to the emergency department via ambulance 45 minutes after the acute onset of numbness and paralysis in the left upper and lower extremities respectively. She denies headache or visual changes. Her vital signs reveal a blood pressure of 162 over 85. Her physical exam reveals absent strength and decreased sensation of distal, distal and proximal left and upper, left upper and lower extremities. Her pupils are symmetric and reactive to light. Her serum chemistry is unremarkable. The hemoglobin A1C was 8.1 one month ago. Which of the following is the next best step in management of this patient? So 64-year-old woman, she has some risk factors such as hypertension and diabetes. So what do you guys think is the answer for this? Okay, Mary, I saw CT, Melody, CT, Rob, CT, excellent. Diddy, CT, Kishin, CT, okay. All right, I'm seeing a lot of CT. Okay, so this patient's coming in with, she's 64 years old. She has hypertension, diabetes, two important risk factors neurologically when it comes to uh, the development of a CVA. So our CVAs, we have hemorrhagic or uh, a hemorrhagic stroke and an ischemic stroke, which is could be uh, thrombotic or uh, thromboembolic in nature. And she's presenting with this weakness of the left side and numbness. So clear red, red flags that the patient has a stroke of some sort. Thinking about acuity of care for this patient, is this patient decompensating in front of you? We, I would say no. We have time to think about what's going on with this patient. We have time to also preserve, pursue further diagnostic testing because the further diagnostic testing is going to allow us to treat the patient. So yes, answer choice A was correct. A CT of the head is important not to diagnose an ischemic stroke. The biggest mistake 
I see a lot of times is that a stroke uh, workup is not for the purpose uh, I'm sorry, the CT is not for the purpose of an ischemic stroke. And I'm already seeing some of you guys answer it excellently. It's for a hemorrhagic stroke or midline shifts because of a hemorrhagic stroke or a hematoma, whether it's epidural or subdural in nature. We want to see shift changes or we want to see bleeding. Because if you think two, three to, two to three steps ahead, we want to give potentially TPA, thrombolytics for this patient. So we cannot give thrombolytics. It is a clear contraindication if a patient has a hemorrhagic stroke. A hemorrhagic stroke, unfortunately, has a very poor prognosis in terms of being able to treat. It, you're really just going to watch and you're going to make sure that there's no development of increased intracranial pressure and any sort of midline shifts or uh, shifting in the intracranial space that can cause patients to herniate, which is what we're most concerned about. So a CT of the head is very important. Excellent job. So what if this patient, I'll, I'll change this question stem a little to a little to a little bit of a more acute care. What if they describe the same neurological deficits in this patient, the same uh, risk factors, age, et cetera. But what if they told you on physical exam that the patient was somnolent and the patient had a little bit of secretions and gurgling in the back of her throat? Then if we ask the question, what is the next best step in management? What are you guys gonna answer? What do you guys think we should do? Excellent, I'm already seeing some answer choices of intubate. Alyssa's saying, should we intubate? Okay, did he intubate? JJ Villar, intubate? Excellent. So the answer choice is yes, intubate. So if you ever think, especially with trauma or an acuity, Always think about your A, B, C, D, E, right? Your airway, breathing, your circulation, your disability, and then everything else, right? So the patient is not able to protect her airway. She needs to be emergently intubated because she will aspirate, and an aspiration event can cause hypoxia, and a hypoxic event can cause the patient to go into a fatal arrhythmia. So those are all the sequelae that we don't want to happen. I had a classic example of a gentleman who was in the ED, had a stroke, they didn't know the CT didn't find anything, but I asked him to stick his tongue out. His tongue stuck to uh, deviated towards the left. I knew that he had a medullary brain infarction and we intubated because he had secretions and we turned out to be on the MRI, a higher fidelity imaging. He did have a stroke in his brainstem. So using your physical exam findings and triaging the patient in acuity of care will help you guide your management. So that's a different uh, situation that the patient came in, you didn't have time to do a CT, Instead, you need to make sure that the patient is stable first. You need to intubate. Once you intubate the patient, you have time to think. You can go ahead now and do a CT of the head with non-contrast. Can anyone answer to me why we do non-contrast instead of contrast? What do you guys think? Okay. Bad for kidneys takes time, Matthew So. Okay. Vincata saying to see if they're bleeding. Okay, to see the bleed. Excellent. So majority of you are saying for bleeding purposes, that's correct. So with contrast, you're actually going to obscure or confound where the true zones of bleeding are actually, because that, that area is probably still actively extravasating blood into that area of the, of the brain parenchyma. So you don't want to do that. Uh, the other reason why, too, is that a hemorrhagic stroke will show up as hyperdense in the initial few several hours of a stroke. Hyperdense is going to be clear and well-defined, and you don't need um, 
a contrast study for that. A contrast study is very useful in detecting uh, brain aneurysms, uh, detecting, I'm sorry, uh, brain aneurysm in the sense of angiography, um, brain abscesses, brain tumors, space occupying lesions, think angiography for that. And also obviously looking for the vasculature if there's any sort of vasculitides. Excellent, okay. The last question is one of my favorite questions. Uh, it's a cardiology one. So this is a 72-year-old woman with a medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, and a recent COVID-19 infection. This sounds like pretty much every patient I see in Upper East Side of Manhattan right now. So it's very hits home. Presents to your outpatient primary care office complaining of a tight band around her chest with associated epigastric discomfort when walking. So she's elderly. She has risk factors. These symptoms have never occurred prior to presentation. Very important to know that. Her vitals are afebrile, heart rate of 72, a blood pressure of 149 over 65, and she's saturating 100% on room air. Her baseline EKG is significant for Q waves in leads 2, 3, and AVF with a left bundle branch block. Which of the following is the next best step in management of this patient? All right, I'm seeing stress echo. Okay, I'm seeing refer to cardiology. So remember, Chris, referring to cardiology, we got we as outpatient primary care doctors, we're going to first do the workup. But usually that is correct in real life. But on USMLE exams, they usually don't want you to choose that answer because they want you to choose the diagnostic test first. But excellent point. All right, so I'm seeing stress echo, stress echoes. Okay. So the answer choice is stress echo, okay. So they didn't clearly tell you that the patient came in with or did an EKG and showed uh, ST segment elevations or the patient's hemodynamic compromise or you know hypotensive, for example, or crushing chest pain. She's having this discomfort and it sounds like she's having angina, right? What's interesting about this woman is that she has a lot of risk factors that present for atypical presentation. Matthew So, right on the money atypical chest pain. She has, uh, she's diabetic. She can have neuropathy that can actually cause impaired uh, kind of perception of pain in the chest from cardiac etiology. She's a woman that can also confound the presentation of the pain. And also uh, she has this weird type of epigastric discomfort. So I've actually seen a lot of patients, they don't come in classically with chest discomfort. They say, oh, I have left chest pain that radiates to my shoulder. That's usually not the case. They'll describe the words chest discomfort. And in women, especially diabetics, they may say they have this feeling of epigastric discomfort or a feeling of like a, a, a uh, elephant around uh, sitting on their chest when they're walking or a tight band around their chest. Uh, and this is all concerning for an atypical presentation of angina or chest pain, and a further cardiac workup needs to be done. Also think about with your differentials, think about what's behind the heart. Think about esophageal causes, GERD, uh, reflux esophagitis, uh, Mallory Weiss, et cetera. So this patient, the reason why we didn't go ahead with diagnostic catheterization is because the patient isn't having a true uh, ST segment elevation MI yet. However, the patient needs to be stressed as you guys all chose the correct answer because she's having this atypical presentation of chest discomfort, or chest pain with this epigastric discomfort. The reason why stress echo is indicated here instead of the rest is because this lady has baseline existing EKG changes. And this is one of the most common questions answered incorrectly on USMLE exams is because a stress, an exercise stress test 
a typical one where you run on a treadmill and they have EKG leads on you won't actually be able to give you the correct information because you already have a confounded baseline. The EKG is already non-interpretable because there's already baseline changes. If I said that the patient had non-baseline changes, if this is a new left bundle branch block, May, then that patient would go to the diagnostic uh, to get a catheterization because that sounds like a new MI, but this patient had it as a baseline finding. So a stress echo is able to have, is going to perform on a patient that has existing baseline changes. They get an EKG before they run. They then run to 85% of their maximum tolerated heart rate. And then we do an echo to look at any sort of uh, wall motion abnormalities to see if there's true ischemia. If there's true ischemic causes, ischemic heart disease, then we're going to go ahead and send the patient to the cath lab. And that's how the, the diagnostic approach, uh, the flow kind of in terms of acuity uh, should happen with this type of patient. Chest pain and chest discomfort on step two CK, especially step three, is very hard because you have to look at the patient's comorbidities, how likely it is in terms of pretest probability that the patient has a true ischemic etiology, and then also acuity. Does this patient need to be sent to the cath lab right away? So another scenario is a woman that she, let's just say she's 72 years old, the same comorbidities and everything, same physical exam find, I'm mean, sorry, same EKG and vital findings, but they tell you that she's morbidly obese, her BMI is 45, and she has difficulty ambulating. What's the other answer now that we want to do in terms of the next best step in management? What do you guys think? Okay. Rob saying chemical. Chemical base. So dobutamine. Excellent. What else? Anybody? So this is a harder one. So the key findings that I described here are a woman that's morbidly obese and can't ambulate. So we can't do a stress echo. We can't do an exercise stress test. She has baseline existing EKG changes. It's a very difficult question. This woman, excuse me, needs a myocardial scintigraphy, which is basically a chemical stress test, a myocardial perfusion stress test, or a nuclear stress test. You may see those words used interchangeably. And that's when you do that. When the patient does not have the ability to reach that maximal heart rate that we want to assess for ischemia, we got to go ahead and do a nuclear stress test. They inject adenosine into the patient. It mimics a stress test. And then we see where the perfusion is. A, a tip for step two CK and step three is I would look at on Google or wherever you want, look at myocardial scintigraphy perfusion images. So a nuclear stress test and look an example of a patient with an active coronary lesion or an active blockage and see the deficit. It looks like almost in a normal patient, you see a ring of orange around the left ventricle, which shows perfusion. Instead, you'll see a, a half-segmented uh, aspect of the ring of orange and then an area of purple. That's a sign, that area of purple of no perfusion or less perfusion, and that could be a significant for uh, ischemic uh, heart disease and coronary artery disease, and they need to go to the cath lab. So again, this patient is uh, somewhat acute, but not life-threatening. So those are some classic examples of the next best step in management for, through a broad range of topics on USMLE Step 2 CK and Step 3 respectively. So always think about the acuity, whether the patient should be treated right away based on that acuity, or do I have time if the patient is stable and I, need, I can go ahead with a further diagnostic workup.
Okay. So just talking about MST to wrap some things up. So MST, we're here as a team. We're here as a family to really support you through everything. We offer one-to-one tutoring. We give you custom study schedules that we actually see in real time with our phones, with our laptops. We're adaptive in the sense of tutoring our uh, sessions to you. Uh, We understand if you're a visual learner or if you more like bulleted PowerPoints or if you like more diagrams, we adjust our tutoring lessons to you specifically, which is amazing. We always keep communication with you. We're texting you, we're supporting you. I've had students, uh, you know, the day before step one exam or step two exam reach out to me like, ah, Sam, I'm so scared. Please let me like, give me some tips. And I just go through them with my nice, calm, smooth, silent, uh, soft voice about how they're going to kill it and how they're going to crush it. And I even give them tips about what they need to eat, the right brain foods, use blueberries, by the way, that's really good. And then we also have the ability to provide mentorship when it comes to residency advising. Uh, All of that is included in our team. Uh, On top of that, we also provide some one-time strategic planning sessions uh, and our MST team uh, can support you with that too and set that up for you as well. And we also have uh, ERAS match we consulting and you know if you have difficulty matching uh, and need to have some assistance through the SOAP, which is a secondary system through uh, the match, uh, we're here also to help you too as well. Okay, so I'm going to leave the rest of the session to some questions. Uh, I think we already have one. Uh, let's see. So from JJ Villar. So for step three, I struggle finding the correct guidelines. As many books say different things. When a patient comes in the office for a checkup, having hypertension. At what point can I treat them now versus two weeks versus later? So just to answer your question, JJ, that's an, uh, it's a really, uh, it's a tough question when it comes to hypertension because the guidelines are changing. Your best bet is to use UWorld to lo- look up hypertension and use, uh, look at the diagrams that they have. Uh, right now we treat patients with blood pressures above 130, uh, actually 120 to 130 through lifestyle changes and lifestyle management changes. Um, However, uh, if it's above 130, then we go ahead and uh, we consider uh, starting a antihypertensive, but we automatically start an antihypertensive if we were to have the patient have a blood pressure of higher than 140. Anybody else have some questions? Okay, let's see. Okay. Are there any, so Anna Kay asks, are there any books we should use for step two CK? What's the closest thing to the way FA was set up for step two, step one? That's an excellent question. So I would first actually say use UWorld. UWorld is an excellent uh, teaching point. Use the ability to save the note cards and the diagrams that they have on UWorld. Those are excellent to refer to and you can group them into respective subjects. Um, some other books that I found uh, beneficial, um, you know, first aid's pretty good, but I think also, uh, Step Up to Medicine uh, is also a good book too as well. However, really um, myself along with the MS, all my other MST teammates, tutors, um, think that UWorld is king and really will help you in terms of answering all your questions. When it comes to UWorld, the, the secret is that UWorld actually asks four to five questions about the same topic. So you're going to see that over and over. And it'll help solidify uh, your question. Okay. Um, so John Engelman is saying, how do you learn medicine when you're not a strong reader? So learning medicine is difficult in the sense of, uh, you know, when it comes to, if you have trouble reading or following up, I think the best 
is to watch videos, use videos and use tutoring, for example, as to, to have a, to have somebody kind of reassert that to you um, via video uh, to help uh, emphasize. Um, I think that is a better way of learning if you do have difficulty reading. Um, so Nadia, would you recommend any other resource UWorld QBank for step three? I would say no, uh, use UWorld for my step three exam. I found UWorld to be excellent and I think it was extremely fair. Um, okay. Let's see. Anybody else have any questions? I think we, oh no, see, I'm sorry. JJ Villar, are there any other resources you recommend to practice more drug ads from statistics? Oh, that's a very good question. So unfortunately I would say no, UWorld has up some pretty good, uh, question examples. Your best bet is to actually with your medical school, go over some research papers about clinical drug findings, like randomized clinical drug findings. And uh, yes, it's not a flyer, but the data that they have in those randomized clinical trial papers uh, is still going to be the same data that's going to be in the flyer, and you can go ahead and interpret it. So I think that's a very excellent question. But if you also would like us to help too, we can definitely help you interpret questions like that uh, by going over uh, papers too in trials. I actually, before when I took step two CK, I looked at a bunch of just trials about anything on New England Journal, uh, Journal of American Medicine, so JAMA, I'm sorry, and I just kind of interpreted the statistics in the table to make sure I actually understood what was going on. So excellent question. Uh, Abdul Aziz, how much of the stats questions is there in step three? There's a decent amount. I think there's a little bit, a lot, uh, a lot more in step two CK than step three. And yes, uh, so from our MST team uh, to John, definitely using audio helps a lot too as well. And podcasts too uh, are excellent uh, in terms of just kind of reiterating or rehearing things over and over. I think that that was also a, a very excellent uh, tool to use um, in your armamentarium study. Uh, Anna is asking best source to solidify statistics knowledge. I would definitely say that the UWorld questions on statistics are really what is uh, is really going to help you a lot because it really explains uh, in terms of how your thought process is, how you should approach it, um, and, and how you should interpret the data. Uh, and you just have to keep looking at more and more. So like I said previously, look at journal articles, look at research articles, randomized clinical trials, look at focus on how do I interpret this as statistically significant, whether it's a table with confidence intervals, whether it's a kind of a, a line plot, whether it's a graph, um, you know, look at those type of different interpretations of data. And that's how you're going to be really good at uh, on step two in terms of the statistics part. I think we're going to have the last question. So Mario is what is the best step, uh, best approach to deal with drug ad Q questions? I would just say basically the same thing in terms of just looking at research articles and looking at the tables, because the tables are basically what you're going to see in the drug ads. And also another secret is look at the bottom of each table or the fine print in the drug ad. They usually feature some important information about exceptions, about things that um, you know maybe certain patients weren't included or that uh, certain patients were lost to follow up. They will definitely um, uh, have that information to help you guide uh, your answer choice. Okay.
All right. So I think that wraps it up uh, for our question, our seminar today on Next Best Step. I hope you really found it useful. I, I really enjoyed it. I love uh, going over questions and examples like this because it is difficult, but we're here to help and we're here to always uh, provide that support. Uh, so thank you all for coming. It's been an absolute pleasure. Again, my name is Sam Hamoud. Uh, please feel free to reach out to our MST team. We have the information featured in the slides um, and we look forward to seeing and hearing from you. We wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much. We hope this was helpful and that it took some of the guesswork out of the equation for you. If you have any questions or would like one-on-one tutoring, get in touch with us via our website, medschooltutors.com, via email at hq at medschooltutors.com, or give us a call, if you're old school like that, at 212-327-0098. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, share, and review us on your podcast app. And if you want more helpful, free information, visit our blog, check us out on social media at MedSchoolTutors, or visit our forum at usmletutors.com. Thanks for listening. Be well.